Thank you. Well, dear brothers and sisters, it's great to be here again to share with you the great message of Jesus. Now, today I'm going to speak about the second sign in the Gospel of John. But before I begin with this second sign, I think I need to recap a bit on the first sign, which I am sure you can remember everything I said from two months ago. But I still do it. In this first sign, where Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding, the theme was not only about how powerful Jesus is. It goes much deeper than that. If you can, rem- can really remember, there were six stone jars which were there to satisfy the legal and ceremonial requirement for purification. Jesus turned water in, in those stone jars into some premium wine. But Jesus did not ignore or demolish the stone jars whose purpose was to fulfill the law. However, he gave them a new purpose. Rather than being used to fulfill the law, now they are used to carry the wine that brings people joy. Jesus came to bring grace into its fullness. But before Jesus came, grace was already there. Such grace came to being from the law when it was presented to Moses on Mount Sinai. Then, from the incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus, grace has achieved its fullness. The first sign also tells us, although implicitly, that in Jesus, the presence of God has achieved its unprecedented level of manifestation. Then, because of this renewed form of God's presence among us, changes of how humans approach God must inevitably change. For example, in the past, people required the water from the stone jars to purify themselves. But really, would those water in the jar can really be holy enough to cleanse our sins and evilness? Can they really do that? In the past, when people seek forgiveness from God, they needed to present a sacrificial offering in form of an animal, whether it's an ox, a ram, or or a pigeon. But really, would these animals be good enough to atone for our sins? Can they really do that? In time before Jesus, all these cleansing rituals, sacrifices, or even the temple, all served a symbolic function only. All these things serve only a temporary purpose until the coming of Jesus, our Emmanuel, and in Him brought to us the presence and complete salvation of God. So all these rituals were effective only because they were taking credit from the ultimate salvation in the future. Therefore, when this ultimate salvation has arrived, meaning when the incarnate Son of God has come to us in the person of Jesus, the relationship between mankind and God should then be maintained through Jesus and Jesus only. Instead of the old system of sacrifices, rituals, or even the temple. Therefore, in this second sign, 
the message of Jesus substituting the old system is clearly presented to us through his action in clearing the temple. Now let us read the passage of this second sign as recorded in John chapter 2, verse 13 to 22. And I'm going to ask Michael to lead us uh, to read this uh, passage. Thank you, Michael. John chapter 2, verse 13 to 22 says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get those out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, oh. That's, yeah. um, After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled that he had said, then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Thank you. Let us all pray together. Dear God, we give thanks to you for you... And your spirit has accurately led the the gospel writer John to accurately record this uh, passage, this incident. And may your spirit today lead us into the reality of your teaching. For we pray in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the second sign in... Let me see. Can I do that? Oops, can can you flip to the next page for me? Okay, thank you. So the second sign in John's gospel is known as the clearing of the, or the cleansing of the temple. And this title has somehow weakened the message Jesus really wanted to reveal. The title, clearing of the temple, makes us to think that Jesus cannot stand seeing those business activities polluting the temple precincts, hence damaging the sacred dignity of God's temple. Therefore, Jesus expelled those business people from the temple precinct to protect the honor of God's temple. That's how most people understand this incident, correct? But then, from his subsequent explanation of his action, Jesus gives a meaning to his action which is very different to our common understanding. By clearing the temple, Jesus did not mean to protect his honor. Instead, he meant to replace the temple by himself. Jesus' action was not a response to how messy the the temple had become. Rather, his action was to counter the Jews' corrupt perception towards the temple. Jews' perception of the temple had evolved over a long period of time. The reason that worship sacrifices, atonement, thanksgivings, and petitions were were all conducted in the temple was because temple represented the presence of God. 
the symbolic function of the temple is God's Emmanuel, His presence among His people. So it's easy to understand why the temple was viewed by the Jews the most sacred place on earth. However, it was also clear that God was already present among His people before the existence of the temple. The earliest representation of God's uh, presence among Israel was the tabernacle during the Exodus period. Exodus 25 says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, God said, and I will dwell among them. Now take note that God commanded the Israelites to build him a sanctuary for his dwelling among them. His being Emmanuel among them. And then God chose the subject to represent his presence. And it was a tent or a tabernacle. God went on to say, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. To make known his presence among the Israelites, God chose a tent, a tabernacle as a symbol. Now we need to know that it was God who took the initiative to ask the Israelites to build a tabernacle as his sanctuary. He even provided the blueprints. But he did not do the same thing for the temple. God did not take the initiative to ask for a temple. After the wilderness wandering, and after the period of Judges, Israel has settled down in the promised land, and they have entered into a new era called the kingdom period. After King David has solidified his power and established his dynasty, he took the initiative to bring forth his idea of building a temple for God. Now pay attention. Temple was David's initiative, not God's. The account was recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and it says, After the king, David, was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. He, David, said to Nathan the prophet, He said, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God, the presence of God, remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, to David, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Hmm, see what? And see that? When the idea of building a temple was initiated, both David and Prophet Nathan did not discern correctly the will of God. That's why the scripture continues to tell us. But that night, the word of God of the Lord came to Nathan the prophet and saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? And on uh, verse 7, it says, Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God surely did not seem very keen in living in a temple. Nevertheless, God allowed David's son Solomon to build him a temple. When the construction of the temple was underway, God's word came upon to Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 6, God said to Solomon, 
As for the temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, observe my laws, and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through, your, through you the promise I gave to David your father. From the word God spoke to Solomon, if we read it carefully, we can find out what the real issues is with the temple. When God said, as for this temple you are building, Solomon and, and the readers would naturally think that God wanted to specify the blueprint of how the temple should be built. Just like how he specified the blueprint for the tabernacle. Right? But no. God did not say a word related to how the temple should be built. What God actually said was a conditional promise. Or we might say a warning. If you follow my decrees, observe my laws and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through the promise I gave to David your father. We might wonder, well, shouldn't the establishment of the temple enhance the spiritual condition of the people? Why would God sound like the temple might, be, might become an obstacle or worse, a trap to his people? But as it turns out, God's worry eventually became a reality. That's very sad. Because of the temple, the Israelites had become a people who took God's presence for granted. As a result, they indulged themselves in evil lifestyle. So, so injustice had soared. And eventually, the Israelites had fallen into idolatry. And they even held idol worship in the temple of Yahweh. So as recorded in the book of Ezekiel, God's glory has left the temple completely. The nature of the temple is different to the nature of the tabernacle. You know what the main difference is? The main difference is their mobility. Temple is fixed, but tabernacle is mobile. In the wilderness, Israel's, the Israelites followed wherever God leads them. Wherever God directed the tabernacle to move to, the Israelites followed. No questions asked. The mobile nature of the tabernacle had become a very invaluable practice of obedience for the Israelites. But the temple is a different story. Temple is fixed in one place and it waits for people to come in. It's not like the, the, the tabernacle which leads people in the front. So during the temple uh, period, God's presence was fixed in one place. People then would have a misconception that God's glory can be locked up within a building. God's presence can be manipulated in the temple. God can then be privatized. This misconception would only lead people to pride, to arrogance, thinking that they had become invincible or infallible. But what God has always remembered is not the temple, but the tabernacle. In the introduction of John's Gospel, it says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And the term made His dwelling in original Greek is the word tabernacle. The incarnate Son of God tabernacles among us. And towards the end, 
In another writing of John, the book of Revelation, and, and, and Pastor Don is, oh, he's not here. He's actually in the Mandarin congregation right now. He has been preaching Revelation. And, and in, in this last book in the Bible, at the end, John mentioned the new heaven and new earth and the new Jerusalem coming on earth. God's presence will be in, the, in its most complete state. And God described his presence as, he said, oops, he says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. And again, dwelling place, here is the word tabernacle. And sadly, in the time of Jesus, in order to protect the temple, which is only the symbol of God's presence, the Jewish leaders would kill Jesus, the real presence of God. That's sadly ironic. They rather hang on to the symbol and they would kill the real thing. The whole clearing of the temple by Jesus was done in the backdrop of such a misconception towards the temple of the Jews. Jesus' clearing of the temple is not a miraculous act, but it is nevertheless a sign. It is because this public action of Jesus was to reveal the messianic mission of Jesus, which is to become the ultimate sacrifice to atone for the sins of all mankind. Jesus' action was recorded in John as this. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at the table exchanging money. So he made a whip out of courts and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money, exchange, money changers and overturned the tables. To those who, who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. The first impression after reading this passage, as I said, is that Jesus is very upset that the temple has become a night market or day market in that sense. The sacred place had become commercialized. Well, the issues go much deeper than merely commercialization. There are at least three layers of issues. First, no doubt that commerce had invaded the temple. However, we need, to, we need not discount the need for business activities within the temple precincts altogether. There are good reasons for them to be there. We need to know that the products being sold in the temple court were not cell phone cases, but tea or curry fish balls. The only products being sold there were animals for sacrifices. That's why the passage only mentioned cattle, sheep, and doves, which were all certified for sacrifice purpose. When Jesus was in Jerusalem, it was near the festival of Passover. There were thousands and thousands of people coming to the temple from all over Israel, or even from Gentile uh, places. They come here to offer sacrifice in the temple. But no traveler would carry the animals with them. For one, it's not convenient. But more importantly, it is to avoid any injury or sickness that the animals might incur en route. Because injured or sick animals cannot be used for sacrifice. Therefore, it makes sense and it's necessary for animals to be sold near the temple. But the scripture says that Jesus found the people selling 
in the temple court. Well, temple court was specified to be the outer court in original Greek. Cellars can operate outside the temple precinct. Here is the diagram of the temple, and normally cellars can operate here, outside the temple, which is very close to the temple, but outside the temple. But now, all these business activities were taking place here, in the outer court of the temple. So they would rather go inside and sell products in the outer court. And the outer court is also known as the court of Gentiles. The issue then was these business activities had taken over all the space in the court of Gentiles, which is the only place in the temple precincts where Gentiles can gather and worship. The temple leaders allowed businesses in the court of Gentiles and thus fully occupy the only area for Gentile to worship. This act was totally against God's will. In the Old Testament, when King Solomon finished the building of the temple at the dedication service, he prayed like this. He said, As for the foreigner, the Gentile, who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, when they come and pray toward this temple, the temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples on earth may know your name and fear you. Letting foreigners to come and worship at the temple is a way to make known God's great name. So temple is the testimony to Gentiles so that all people will pray to and worship God Yahweh. But the temple leaders turn out that they would rather shut out the Gentiles in order to make businesses more convenient. Temple worship has been monopolized by these Jewish leaders. And in a sense, they wanted to monopolize God Yahweh as well. Well, you, you, you now know why Jesus was so furious when he saw all these business activities in the court of Gentiles. So Jesus' clearing of the temple was not because he rejected business activities altogether. He cleared the temple because those temp temple leaders had become so delusional, thinking that worship of Yahweh is now under their ownership and authority so that they can decide who can and who cannot worship God Yahweh. The spiritual pride was at a record high level. So Jesus' act was a symbolic action to totally reject this perception towards the temple. Just from his action to clear the temple, we might not be able to really get this message that the temple has become obsolete and that the time has come and the temple will be replaced and no longer be the true representation of God's presence. We might not get that just from the action of Jesus. However, in Jesus' subsequent explanation to his action, he made it very clear. The scripture says, the Jews then responded to, to him after what Jesus had done. The Jews said, the Jews' leader actually, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all these? The Jewish leaders questioned Jesus' authority in expelling the sellers from the outer court. 
So they demanded a sign from Jesus as a proof of his identity. But Jesus did not respond to what these leaders demanded. Jesus did not give any more sign or miracle because he said what he just did in the temple was already a sign. Unfortunately, these leaders were so blind that they could not, or maybe they would not see it. Jesus did not do another sign or miracle but he did offer an explanation to the sign he just did. The scripture goes on. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he has spoken of was his body. Verse 21, the last line here, was added, to, to the passage by John himself. The first thing Jesus said was already totally politically incorrect. Destroy this temple? Well, whoever mentioned any potential threat against the temple would be considered blasphemy against God. If I'm to paraphrase Jesus' words, it would be like, why don't you just tear it down the temple? What he meant was that this building is no longer needed. Now, now do you understand the essence of the... You, you, you remember, right? The essence of the temple. The essence of it is to represent the presence of God among his people. So then, we need to think. When God came to, to the earth in Jesus, what then constitutes the real temple? What then really represents God Emmanuel? A building or a person? Jesus said, just demolish this building. And then he, he said, he will raise it again in three days. But whoever with some logical sense would have known that a temple built in only three days would be a totally different kind of temple. Jesus was not talking about temple expansion or reconstruction. Jesus was referring to a totally different entity that will replace the temple as the representation of God's presence. And this new entity, as John made it clear to us, is Jesus himself. Jesus is the new temple because he is Emmanuel. It's he who tabernacles among us. In this second sign, Jesus wanted to show us one of his messianic mandates, which is to free and liberate the worship of God from the domination of the temple leaders. And this liberation comes with great cost. Jesus said he will raise it again in three days. We Christians will automatic, automatically understand that three days refer to the time between his death and his resurrection. In Jesus, we can all worship God freely through Him. But this freedom came to us because He paid the price with His life. The temple represented God's presence. And God's presence is equivalent to the manifestation of His glory. But God was most glorified, not in the temple, but on the cross. The temple sacrifices were to atone for the sins of God's people. But 
what really can cleanse our sins and evilness was not the temple sacrifices, but the sacrifices made on the cross in the life of Jesus. The temple was a place where God's people can come to worship Him, come directly to Him. Well, not directly, but come to Him. But when Jesus' work was finished on the cross, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, meaning that we can then come to God directly through not the temple, but Jesus. In John chapter 4, Jesus was passing by Samaria. And he had a conversation with a Samaritan woman while he was resting by a well. While being asked about where is the proper place to worship God, Jesus answered, Women, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, the temple. Yet, a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The phrase, the time is coming in John's Gospel always refers to the crucifixion of Jesus. When salvation is accomplished on the cross, to worship God does not depend on location, not Jerusalem, not even the temple. Worship in spirit, because God is a spirit, which cannot, can never be locked up in a certain location. God is a spirit, meaning that no one can privatize or monopolize Him. Worship in truth. What's truth? Or better yet, who is the truth? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Worship in truth means worship through Jesus, not the temple. Now, let's reflect on certain implications on this second sign. First, when we examine our lives, is there anything that Jesus might say to us? Why don't you just tear it down? Why don't you just get rid of it? Looking at all the gifts and grace we have received from God, have we had any attempts to privatize it? To privatize God's grace? Not just ourselves as individuals. How about our church? Our fellowships? Our small groups? Our ministry teams? Have we ever, maybe unconsciously, monopolized our outer court so that other people would find it difficult to enter? When we kept seeing our church, our fellowships, our ministries as ours, that's the time Jesus may say to us, why don't you just demolish it? It can be replaced. It's no longer needed. The second implication, brothers and sisters, is that whether we have hung on to some traditions or ways of doing things more tightly than we have hung on to our biblical teaching. Well, there is no tradition more sacred than the temple tradition. But still, even temple tradition can become a detriment to the truth of Jesus Christ. And finally, in this period where, when Jesus has already achieved salvation for all of us on the cross, and also resurrected and ascended to heaven, what now constitutes temple? God now still wants to make known His name to the world through His temple. God now still wants to, 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 to 
let people know his greatness through his temple. But what is temple today? Today's temple is no longer a building like the one in the Old Testament. Today's temple carries the characteristics of the tabernacle, which is its mobility. Today's temple is an organic temple. It's a living temple. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul tells us, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred. And you together are the temple. Brothers and sisters, when Christ lives in us, when Christ dwells in our hearts through faith, when God the Father is present over all of us, through all of us, and in all of us, we become God's temple. Not this building, but us as people of God. Now we, we, as a people of God, constitute the manifestation of God's presence, God Emmanuel, to the world. You know, don't be an undercover Christian. You know, some Christians might even think that they are doing very deep undercover that no one can tell they are Christians in their work or in their circle. There's no need for undercover Christian in the world. Well, unless you are in some maybe Muslim country or something. If we are not functioning as salt and light, Jesus might say to us, why don't you just tear it down? You no longer need it. So, brothers and sisters, I truly hope that this second sign of Jesus will remind us so that we are willing to be continuously renewed and shaped by God's amazing truth. So that when people come into us, they will find God's grace and good news in our midst. And at the same time, we need to bear in mind that we carry the identity of God's temple. Which means that we ought to pay attention on holy living. Our fellowship should be characterized with grace and love. So that when this mobile temple walks into the unbelieving world, we can proclaim with words and action that Jesus Christ is our only Savior and our only God. Amen? Let us all pray. Father God, we give thanks to you for your salvation through Jesus. We give thanks to you that you have chosen us to be your dwelling place, to be your temple, to be your tabernacle. May your Spirit guide us to witness you. Give us courage to be bold and to fear not. The world needs your good news. So please help us to be faithful witness for your glory. For we pray in the wonderful name of the Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.